This series contains frank discussions of sexual abuse, addiction, mental illness, and suicidality. It includes unfiltered and, at times, profane language regarding these topics. Episodes may also contain sarcastic remarks and laughter. Some may deem inappropriate, given the seriousness of the issues covered. Many survivors, myself included, employ humor as a means of self-protection from the feelings brought on by recounting the past. Our goal is not to shock or offend, but rather to provide open, honest, and raw conversation to demonstrate you're not alone and there is a way out. This is Silenced by Stigma. Our guest today is stage actor John Greger, whom during the first UK lockdown was forced to once again wrestle with the unimaginable impact of his abuse. He's written, produced, and filmed a short about his extraordinary struggle with self-harm and profound compulsive behavior. Hi, John. Hi. Thank you for coming out. I realize for you this is difficult and you're a little nervous, which is completely understandable. I'm here if you need to stop no matter what. We'll get through this one together. So what I know about you from our preliminary talk is that you're 54 years old, a stage actor, and you luckily didn't have any abuse of any kind in your home, which is almost a little uncommon for sexual abuse survivors because abusers tend to sense vulnerability and go after kids who are a little busted up. Would you be willing to discuss what happened when you were 10? Yeah. One of the kids in my class said to sort of come over and sort of play at his house. And there was about, I think, about five or six maybe other kids there. But there was also this older boy who was 14, 15. Um, and what I kind of remember, he was just sitting in a bed naked. Then he got all of us other kids to sort of take down our, our trousers and our underpants. And then he made us all sniff each other's genitals. I can't really remember how the link goes from there. I mean, suddenly it seemed to my memory, all these other kids weren't there. And it was just me, my classmate, and the abuser who then got me to um, perform various uh, sexual favors for him. And that's, that's how it started. A lot of that summer, I mean, I can pinpoint three separate occasions. There may be more than that, but I, I don't know, or I might put one or two together. I'm not sure. Um, and that was it, really, and until um, I kind of said in my 10-year-old way that I'm, I'm not going again. Um, you know, my friend had come around to my house and said, sort of, uh, um, I won't say his name. When is John coming back? Get John to come back. Uh, and that was it, really. And, and then I kind of, I just tried to block it out for, for a lot of, lot of years. Um, reading other survivor stories and from speaking to other survivors, even though sort of um, situations are different for pe different people, there are some, some things which will resonate between survivors and, and that one of them, one of them is, is the kind of self blame. Um, I kind of looked at what happened to me with the eyes and thinking of a 10 year old and 
as far as I was concerned, I was dirty. You know, I made it happen. There was something that was wrong with me. And that's how I buttoned it all up and suppressed it for, well, for about 40 years. Was there violence or threats of violence to come back? The kind of coercion that was there was a kind of unspoken coercion, sort of like, I'm really big and you're really small, so you're going to do what I say. But also there was the sort of persuasion of sort of like somebody older. You know, you, you look up to people that are older, kind of want to impress people that are older. You want to kind of be their friend. You want them to like you. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what he took advantage of. Right. So essentially it was just an older kid telling you what to do. Yeah. How do you feel you changed from this as a kid? I became more insular. I became scared. I became untrusting. I became very defensive. I had kind of like very odd things going on in my head. But when I disclosed to my dad what had happened to me as a, as a kid, he said, sort of, well, you know, when, when you were younger, your, your mom and me were sort of, you know, we were concerned about some of the things that you seemed to be doing, but we just thought that was just you. And I had odd, odd little things in my head about things like infection, you know, that every, everybody was infected. Anybody, anybody that touched me, I would have to go and wash my hands. I, I had sort of residues of, of memory, which were kind of bodily things rather than so much kind of intrusive memories. It was more things like tastes and smells. And I got into a period of excessive washing. I would just wash myself constantly all the time, sort of even inside. I, I used to drink soapy water so I could clean my inside out as well. I felt that it was that I was dirty, that I, there was something wrong with me. That's why this had happened. So, so as a kid, sort of like growing up into adolescence, it was very hard going through those sort of like early adolescent years because I, I had a really tough time when I went to high school in that I was very quiet. I was insular. I didn't talk very much to anybody. And this kind of made me a target because I didn't respond. That kind of made it worse. You know, so for, for me, my thinking, you know, I, I thought, well, they can all see through me. They can see what I'm like. Um, strange enough, it was discovering drama that helped me a lot because I, I found somewhere where I could be somebody else, where I didn't have to be me. People would sort of like call me out for being weak. Yeah, sort of quiet, pale, sick. And that kind of got worse because, you know, you're starting to go through adolescence. But, you know, some of these chickens are starting to come home to roost with kind of what happened to me. I'm really, I'm really not sure. People call me weird, call me queer, they call me um, weak, and other things. And it was, this was also reinforcing what I was telling myself, that I wasn't normal, that there was something that I was afraid. And, and what I found sort of by doing sort of drama was that I found an escape from that because I could be somebody else. I could live somebody else's life. I could hide behind um, a character. And I think sort of professionally, I've done that for over 30 years. But it's been a kind of similar sort of thing, you know, choosing to do it as my job. It's only sort of like been in the last three or four years that I've actually said, no, I need to, I need to be 
I need to find me. I need to find who I am. And a lot of that is, is through processing what happened to me as a kid. I speak to a lot of survivors, and one of the many common threads is they become performers in some way or another. Yeah. What I believe is they're getting, at least in part, that adulation and acceptance from a crowd mm-hmm. that at least helps them a little bit. Yes, I think so. I think that, that there's also about being who people want you to be. It's sort of like in, in kind of social situations as well, you perform up to what people expect of you. So I've kind of like, I've had that in sort of like social situations. So, well, well, I need to be this, I need to be like this for this person. And I need to be like this for this person. You know, I've got myself into all sorts of psychological twists because I'm pretending to be three or four different people. And, you know, I've I've had things in the past, you know, where um, previous partners have been out with me and said, you're never like this when you're with me. It's, it's, it's that sort of thing of, of wanting to please, of wanting to do the right thing. You know, I, I can look back at sort of my experience of abuse and say that's a similar sort of thing. I wanted to fit in, to do what people wanted me to do, because then they'd like me. Yeah. And then when you're performing, you don't have to think about it because yeah. they're, they're saying, this is the person you need to be right now. They lay out the character and that sort of mm-hmm. removes the, how do I have to be with this person? How do I react? When you're performing, it's sort of a, a set template. Like this is the character. This is what you're going to say. There are specific boundaries as well. When you're performing on stage or when you're, doing, when you're in a, a film or, or TV, there are boundaries. There are boundaries of which you know, sort of. Someone's going to turn a camera on and they're going to turn it off. Or on the stage, the lights come up. It's your entrance. You say the lines that you're supposed to. The other person says the lines they're supposed to. And within that, there's a kind of a lot of creativity that you can build up. But those kind of boundaries were always very, always very useful to me. Right. Structure. Yeah, it was structure. And it was, you know, it was when, when I left the stage and then that's when all the kind of, the kind of nightmares would return. And as I said, for years, I, I didn't, I didn't understand what had happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's not uncommon. I didn't, I I hadn't had no explanation for it. And there was a stage patch. I was in, I was in a play which, which focused on abuse. I'd seen this scene numerous times, but this time it sort of hit me. It was, it was a scene before I was about to kind of come on and the sort of lead character in it, who was a young person who had abused his younger sister. And he was speaking with, the uh, therapist and the therapist character was taking him through the various stages of abuse the therapist was going right well you know first yeah, it's all about selecting and then it's about grooming and then it's about trying out as they were saying this i was just i was just kind of sitting there thinking this is what happened to me and it was a real kind of breakthrough moment that i just thought i could finally look at it i could give it a name um that opens up like a massive hole you're going to fall into but there was there was just something there and and i thought yes that's it this this happened to me and it kind of like made her made her kind of a real a real change in in um, in how, how i kind of like viewed the past and and i just kind of threw up everything everything just kind of got ripped up 
and just shattered everywhere. That's interesting because you'd watch that scene time and time again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must have seen that scene about five or six times. Uh, you know, some, sometimes, sometimes I would listen to the side of the stage for going on, sometimes I wouldn't. That day I was, and that day it hit me. And, you know, through all the rehearsal periods, reading it, none of that had, had landed, but just that day it did. Do you feel like being exposed to that scene chipped away, or do you feel like you no longer needed to protect yourself from what it was depicting? Perhaps, perhaps it's kind of a, a little bit of both. The, the main writer on, on the play had been working a lot with a, uh, a guy who'd been like a family therapist for years and had worked in social work. He'd worked in the care system. And you know, I, I'd remember, I'd, I'd gone to him not long before that, and I said, look, I, I, I think I've got some problems. You know, can you, can you recommend anywhere where I can kind of find help? So, you know, something had sort of started to shift, I think. I was dealing with um, the kind of star of depressive cycles. And I'd kind of had them since I was, you know, since I was a teenager, but I just, like so many people, I just lived with them. Yeah, I, I was starting to fall off the edge. You know, I, I was kind of, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, um, I couldn't concentrate on anything. Nothing, nothing meant anything to me anymore. And um, well, that's sort of the double-edged sword, right? Yeah. To get better, to come to terms with it, you almost have to relive it, and that can haunt you. Mm. I started when it finally became apparent that what happened to me was actually abuse, and I'd been sober long enough to be ready to understand that. But then the dream started coming, you know, like the PTSD moments, crippling panic attacks, and they were concurrent, so they just kept lasting for hours and hours. And then I finally reached a point, I think also through this project, where I got interviewed a bunch of times and I told my story time and time again to strangers. And through that process, I was able to get more of a safe distance. Yeah. So it helped me put it in a better place, really. So you found a creative outlet to face this stuff head on. And I'd like to hear about it. So it's taken me a very very long time but i suppose that's kind of what that's what i do so i mean i, I remember sort of like being in a group of male survivors and and we all sort of like came together for the last time that we were together and, and one of the guys who was a musician brought along his instrument and played a piece for everybody and i'd written a poem about kind of surviving and there was a local organization locally that used to take local kids out in the summertime and take us on jaunts to look at things and, you know, just keep us out of trouble, I suppose, really. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I got lost and I was stuck on this road and I didn't know where I was. And it kind of like, I, I kind of used that as a metaphor for this, this poem of being kind of stuck and, and holding things that fell apart in your hands. It was that and sort of, I, I found in, I found in, in the lockdown and, when the pandemic came along, but um, that whole thing about isolating yourself and that whole thing about having to, um, again, obsessively wash yourself, brought it all back. It all kind of like, it, 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 it all just accelerated. It was kind of like in the book by Bessel van der Kopp, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. It's like, it's like my mm -hmm. body remembered, but, you know, 
and and that that was what I I was going through quite a lot of of quite severe trauma, um, just just on my home uh, home in lockdown. You know, go, going out to the shops was was incredibly um, full of just anxiety. It's such a bizarre cross that we bear. But logically, if somebody told you what happened to them as a child, you would very clearly understand that it's not the child's fault. When it's us, there's almost no ability for perspective, and that can drag us down and cause problems. The fact that you have physical issues that have come up and you say you're having a surgery, the health outcomes for survivors, aside from the obvious, right, like depression, anxiety, PTSD, all the things that we're very familiar with, the physical problems that come with that are extraordinary. I've read a study that was done in Australia, and, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it listed all these common health problems with survivors, arthritis, back pain, heart trouble, endocrine problems, and then there's somatoform disorder, which mimics the symptoms of physical problems where the person suffering from it is convinced something is wrong because their body hurts. But when they get checked out, there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. It's absolutely insane because this stuff rewires your brain and you're carrying all this hatred of yourself inside. And that just throws gasoline on a fire. I think the only way out is talking about it one way or another. And it's great that you're doing that and you're able to look back now without as much disdain for yourself. What has happened in a long, long period of, of therapy, and you know, maybe this is the same for you, Mike, and, and others, is, is that it takes such a long time to make any sense of what happened. And, and even, even now, I'm not sure of a lot of things. You know, why can I only remember certain bits? Why can I remember everything? You know, if I was in a courtroom, I'd be ripped to pieces by a, a defense lawyer. As they go, well, where was the bed? On which wall was it? Was the window on the left or the right? Just trying to kind of make sense of things and, 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 and pull things together. As, as You know, and I, I, feel, um, I feel I've been harmed physically and mentally by never speaking about it. It's kind of like it's pushed down inside me. And it has, has left me now. You know, I've got, you know, a few sort of physical problems that, you know, I've got to go in for an operation at the end of this week. And, and a, lot, a lot of it, I think, is that whole sort of thing as I've just pushed everything deep inside me. I've said, I will not think about that. I will not go there. Um, it's disassociated me with the rest of me. It's disassociated me with my, my kind of younger self, you know. A lot of times I've had sort of people go, well, you know, we don't really know who you are, John. And I go, well, I don't know who I am. I'm various people. And I've, you know, I've left the younger part of me that I don't want to speak to anymore. That I hated. I hated myself. And I, I didn't want anything to do with, with me as a kid. I'd messed up. I'd done something bad. I got myself into this situation and there's no one to blame but me. And I was left with all these kind of memories and things and it was all my fault. And so, you know, I, I pushed that little kid away. I told him that I hated him. And it's taken me a real long time to be able to say to my younger self that I'm sorry. And, you know, I, 
times now, you know, that, that I'm, I'm left with this unbelievable anger and pain. And it's kind of like, I feel that's my, my younger self just kind of going, listen to me. But it's kind of, it's so powerful. It's very hard to know what, what he's trying to say and trying to kind of like trying to work out sort of like what my younger self wants and what, what he wants to say to me and what, how I can help and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, of course, the thing is that he wants it not to have happened. And, you know, when I've, when I've talked in groups of other survivors, you know, you'll kind of say, that's, that's our wish that it hadn't happened, that we don't, we don't remember. Or that it didn't happen, rather than we don't remember it happening, it's kind of like that it didn't happen. Or that somebody, you know, the superhero crashed through the wall and saved us. But that didn't happen. And, you know, that there wasn't, there wasn't any language for me at the age of 10 to be able to say anything to my parents. And I sometimes go in and work in schools, uh, do kind of workshops for, for kids and things. I, I, was, I was changing in a, one of the staff toilets of this, this primary school, and I saw, saw up on the wall next to the toilet was, was all these kind of lists of signs that um, one of their students is, is being abused. And then I went down the list and I ticked them all off. And then they thought, well, who was there for me? You know, none of my teachers, none of my parents, nobody saw nothing. I'm glad you said that because I wanted to go back to the compulsive washing that you started engaging in when you were 10. Were your parents aware of the severity that you were actually drinking soap? Um, I don't think they knew that, but certainly sort of, uh, you know, my hands were like, red raw uh from overwashing and and they just thought it was just me being me just being a funny little kid growing up i mean you, you know you can you can say obviously that there, there was the 1970s things were different but it's abuse is still abuse it's kind of like it's it's you know and i, I don't i don't blame my parents i don't sort of but you know nobody saw anything nobody asked anything my friends' parents didn't say, why are you playing with this older kid? What is he doing in your room? Why is the door locked? None of that. It's extraordinary, the obliviousness of people around you. It, yeah, my parents didn't help. I mean, we actually went to a family counselor because I was being disruptive. And when they dragged it out of me, all that happened was I got grounded. Oh, my God. I was in trouble, and neither the counselor or my parents did anything about it. They never spoke about it again. Yeah, okay. It was the 80s, but that excuse is bullshit. Yes. There are some <laughs> fundamental things that we can all agree are sinful, are a crime against one another, regardless of the time period. And to find out that your son was abused by a woman doesn't make it any less of a problem and clearly, it's a problem because you brought me to a counselor. I was becoming incredibly unruly. So I don't care that it was the 80s. My thought is, if we can't get together on these basic needs, on basic humanity, yeah. I don't care the year it was. The people in my life failed me drastically, and you went through the same. Yeah, I mean, you know, what you told me sort of, you know, I can't imagine how that, that, must, that must have been for you. But that was my fear. 
that was my fear. If I told it, I would be blamed. Um, I just kind of remembered I, they had sent me to a shrink when I was a kid, but they didn't say that it was a shrink. It was just a, a doctor that I went to the hospital about because I, I had a lot of stomach problems. And it was a lot of them that basically I'd also started making them up. So I couldn't tell whether my stomach problems are real or whether I just imagined it. And so they eventually sent me to the doctor at the hospital. And I couldn't quite work out because I had a stomach problem. And he kept on asking me about how I was feeling. And it, ne it never came to me until sort of like 30 odd years later. I was going, that was a psychiatrist. And they didn't say anything. Again, it was all just kind of like hidden. They reckoned that, you know, that I was a sensitive child. So don't mention anything to John. You don't get upset. Right. I was having severe stomach problems as a kid, too. My mother was a monster, and I was sexually abused for the first time, uh, the first female who abused me. She was my babysitter, so I was 10, and she was 16, right? I started getting all these stomach problems, and there were no real physical problems. It was that somatoform disorder I was talking about earlier, so there was nothing wrong with me physically. But when you think about it, it's interesting because we destroy ourselves from the inside. And the most obvious thing I can say is that the damage done by any kind of abuse is so lasting, is so impactful that the whole notion of, well, my parents beat me and I turned out fine. Yeah. You 100% mm -hmm. did not turn out fine. Let's just be clear about that. And maybe that's why you're nervous around people. You get into that situation of, I need to act like different guy with this person and this person. And then you realize it. And it turns out you're angry inside. And that explains so many things. But we have to do something positive with it. Because you can't let that seething anger stay inside yourself. It's going to destroy you even further. It did that to me. We just have to find a way to do something, you know, positive with it. Yeah. At least not completely destructive with it. That would be a good step. Yes. It's trying to do, do something with it. And for years, I channeled my anger into my performance. I'm a really sort of quiet introspective person uh, i i've played on stage these complete maniacs who just kind of go off the edge and it just kind of comes out i can i can find that uh, edge um but kind of in ways of you i've eaten my anger I, i've eaten it and I, i've kind of i've suppressed it and that's also sort of left me with sort of like digestion problems and problems with sort of joints and stuff just just because i have you know i have physically kept it inside because i have i have the fear of letting it out that it becomes uncontrollable that rage and that pain and like yourself you know i've gone into times where i've i've, I've kind of just vanished into myself rather than sort of like gone off the edge with, with, with other people i've just vanished i've kind of drunk to excess like so many others you know i've dabbled in kind of drugs and the main kind of thing that i used to do and sadly still do on occasion is, is that i, I self-harm you know i've 
I've hit myself. I've bashed my head against walls, um, slapped myself in the face. I've taken a knife to myself, you know, sort of put my hand in scalding water, all these kind of things. I've, I've just done this. A kind of self-medication, I suppose, but also it's, it's that kind of, you're, you're trying to deal with these massive emotions that you have no way of processing. So the self-harm and compulsive washing are still happening now? Uh, the self-harm is, I mean, the, I, I really watch the compulsive washing because I, I kind of, I, I, I now recognize it, but also it is, it is the time of COVID where, where you have to continually rub your hands with sanitizing gel. You have to wash everything. Um, at home, we have a quarantine cupboard where, where we've done shopping. That, all the shopping goes in the cupboard for 24 hours before either of us touch it. In some ways, as as has become kind of obsessive. It hasn't. It hasn't got the level that it was when I was a kid, where I would sort of bath a lot and use lots and lots of soap. I know I I would wash my eyes out with soap and put soap on my nose, drink soapy water. I mean, I thankfully I don't I don't do that now. But I mean, that's that's what I did when I was a kid because I felt you know I was infected everywhere. I was I was dirty. I just had to get it off me and hurting myself um, was a way of being able to kind of make that happen. Self-harming these days is usually when I'm very drunk. I don't know, something's got in my head and, and I'm suddenly really angry and I'm upset about something. Um, usually something I've done or haven't done or it's a, a feeling that I've been left with. And yeah, I, I've taken a, a knife to myself and you know, cut myself. And, and it's, it's highly embarrassing, you know, it, it's a punishment and also it's a kind of relief. It's kind of relieving some pressure. It's also kind of making you feel something because there is that kind of disconnection between, between your body, between your emotions and between your mind. Sometimes that, that act of, of harming yourself is kind of like, I can feel something there. I made myself feel something. I understand you've been with the same woman for eight years. You're married now, but I think it's for six months. Yes, yes. So what's going on with all the self-harm and her being around? How's she dealing with it, if she's even aware of it? Uh, yes, yes. I've, I've kind of really lucked out with, with a partner in that um, my wife is trauma-informed because she's, she's worked with a lot of asylum seekers, refugees. That adds to my kind of guilt is that I've, I've brought this home for her as well. But yeah, so she, she kind of like said to me, you need to come and speak to me if you feel it's going to happen. She says, it doesn't matter. You can wake me up. You can talk to me. Do you take her up on that offer? Uh, I have done, yes. And at other times I haven't. Other times I've, I've gone into like a real solo that I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to talk to her. Um, you know, the last time I self-harmed, I just sat downstairs, waited for her to go to bed. I planned it all out in my head. And I waited for her to go to bed. Then I went to the kitchen, got a knife, and started cutting myself. Where were you cutting yourself? Um, where it doesn't show. So along, along the stomach, um, mostly. And I'd say a lot of things come down to the stomach for me. So it's, it's off, I'm often cutting myself along the stomach or along the arms. But she must notice this, right? Yeah. What I kind of do now is, you know, like that last time, the next morning I said, look, this, this happened last night. And she asked me to show her the, the marks and 
than I did. And yeah, yeah, I mean, she was, she was extremely upset, but she kind of said, you know, you have to tell me. And sometimes I'm, I'm good at doing that, sometimes I'm not. And it kind of does leave me also with that kind of residue kind of guilt as well, that I'm putting someone else through this. You know, in some ways you go, well, it's all right if I beat myself up. But if, I'm part, if someone else is being harmed because of what I'm doing to myself, then that's, that's a terrible thing. Yeah, it's a pretty rare situation where someone could harm themselves and it would have no impact on anyone else, you know? That's also kind of what stopped me killing myself. I have been at times where I've just wanted to, there's been so much in my head that I just thought I just have to make it stop. The, the effect that it would have on people I love would be, would be quite catastrophic. So um, that's, that's always kind of brought me back, yeah. I know that feeling. It's this feeling where, on the one hand, I think, at the time at least, this would ease my pain. But at the same time, I think, unintentionally at least, it's an act of cruelty to people who care about me. Yes. yes. It sounds like she loves you, warts and all, and that's the best thing any of us can hope for. And your suicidality, I mean, again, it's so common in survivors. They are 13 times more likely to attempt suicide and 10 times more likely to make plans for suicide, to plan it out. And that's compared with the general population. So you're carrying around some rough stuff. I mean, it's difficult. It's like we all do. And are you in any kind of therapy or are you medicated? Uh, yes, on both counts. I'm, uh, I'm on kind of a strong antidepressant. And I get regular therapy, which is, which is subsidized. That's through a charity in the UK called One in Four. And they deal with um, adult survivors of child abuse. And they've been quite, quite incredible. They've been really good with me and um, others as well. That's, that's who I have the survivors group with. And I really shied away from doing group therapy because I was scared. And also sort of when they said sort of like we're putting together an all-male group, I have difficulty with, with groups of men. You know, I'm, I much prefer sort of being in groups of women, just be, I guess just because of what's happened to me and also sort of um, other things sort of like from when I was growing up, I, I have no very little trust in, in men. Because you always, always think that you're on your own. That's the thing about this, this stuff is that it isolates you. You think it's me. Every, you know, you look around everyone else on the bus, on the street, and they all seem to be having perfectly good lives, happy, smiling, going about their business. And you think it's me. It's me. I'm like this. I'm, I'm the one sitting on the bus with my hooded top over my head, blasting my ears out with very loud music. Um, when I went into this room and sat, sat with other survivors, when they started speaking, it was like what they were saying was inside my head. And I suddenly didn't feel that I was alone anymore. You know, when somebody spoke about something, I could understand what they were saying. Yet the situations were different. It was just like you'd found your, your, your people, as it were. You know, like they say, this is the club that nobody wants to join. But <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. 
And it's a strange thing. We've all heard the numbers one in four. And eventually, we sort of become used to it. But when you think about how massive that group is, it's an inconceivable number when you truly sit down and think about it. I mean, there's eight billion people on the planet, which means two billion people are, have been, or will be sexually abused. Yet the irony of it all is that we feel alone, completely alone. And that's us. And that's just the weird dichotomy of it. How do you deal with this feeling about therapy and medication in terms of progress you've made? I personally think, you know, I, I have made quite a bit of progress. Two years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do this interview. So sometimes my brain and my body now speak to each other. You know, sometimes, you know, the rages that I have are like a child's rages. You know, it is that sort of like young person that's, that's like kicking off. And, you know, and I can feel that now and I go, yeah, I know what that is now. You know, some, sometimes I can do something about it. Sometimes I can't. You know, like you know yourself, it, it's, it's a long road. It's, and it's not, it's not a straight road. No, it's not. You'll go up and you think, oh, I'm on my way now. And then suddenly you're, you're kicked right back. Something happens, something opens up and you're gibbering on the floor. You know, when I see survivors on, on TV and they're having to go through such terrible things because that's what the TV producers want. And it's almost like they're having to relive their entire trauma for entertainment. It's a sort of perverse voyeurism. Yeah, that really got me when I read The Body Keeps the Score. And these stories were unbelievable, just terrifying. And I thought, oh, well, I can't say that I'm worthy of being as hurt as these people. I didn't suffer these horrific, violent crimes. You know, and it, it makes you feel mine wasn't that bad. Yes, yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. I feel exactly the same. The, the first book that I found really, really useful was, it's called Breaking Free. And one of my therapists, the first therapist I had who actually believed that I'd, I'd been abused. Um, wait, wait, wait. Stop right there. Are you telling me that you had a therapist who didn't believe you? When I was getting treatment for, for depression, and so, you know, this is before I'd been sort of assessed by a medical professional and you know, I'd found someone who was close to me. And while sort of talking to her one night, I kind of disclosed what had happened to me. And she just, she didn't believe me. She just said, you know, I thought that you'd be more upset because I'd sort of talked about it. I'd gone through it. Like I'd sort of said, this happened, this happened, this happened. And, you know, because I hadn't been bawling my eyes out or ripping up the furniture, as far as she was concerned, was not authentic. And this is a licensed therapist, right? This is a licensed counselor, yes. All right. So what do you have to do? Do you have to shit yourself? Do you have to jump out a window? What symptom do you have to exhibit for someone to think that it's real? It's absolutely infuriating. Well, yeah. Yeah. I read this article by Dr. Joan Cook, and she was discussing clinical reactions to abuse. And one of the study participants self-reported incident with a therapist where he discloses abuse and his therapist's response was, I hope you're not one of those homosexuals who's going to waste my time with imagined abuse. Every time I think about that or I bring up that quote, it just makes me want to find that guy and bang his head for him. What is very comforting for me is that 
there is this community which is now so like it's becoming worldwide and that we kind of that we stand up for each other and that means a tremendous amount to me i think in all all our cases nobody did stand up for us. and we have a kind of community where people will i know you were nervous and in the face of that fear you still stood up and zipped yourself open in a public forum you know, I, I was worried about this. I was thinking, oh, you know, when I get too upset, you know, what often happens with me, I can't find the words. I can't express it. I'm disassociating. But I'm so full of admiration for you doing this. Thank you. This is such a powerful thing to do, to speak amongst each other and to support each other. It, it's an extremely powerful thing to do. So thank you very much. You know, I figured at 49, I should do at least one good thing for other people. <laughs> So, you know, I'm doing that. And I appreciate you so much for coming on. Thank you. And go hug your wife. She sounds fantastic. Yeah, that's she is. Thank you so much, Mike. Okay. Okay.